Do you ever just want to get away from it all? Leave the rat race behind and commune with nature? Get back to solitude? Test your physical and mental limits? But what if your casual, relaxing weekend in nature goes horribly wrong? What if the dangers of the wilderness and horrors of humanity step in to reduce you to another statistic? What if, while communing with nature, your trip takes a wrong turn and you end up meeting your maker. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who loves the great outdoors and would love to figure out how to enjoy the great outdoors while remaining indoors. Even though the likelihood of me getting murdered by a stranger out in the woods is lower than the likelihood of me getting murdered by my intimate partner, statistically speaking, of course, my husband knows what he's got. (laughs) He'd be a real dum-dum to kill this prize pony. Plus, he also knows that if he did, I would haunt him to death like Patrick Swayze haunted Rick Avilas and that other guy in Ghost. Where am I? Oh, right. Even though my chances of getting murdered in the woods are pretty low, the fact is they remain even lower if I never go out into them. See? That's called logic. But to be perfectly clear, because that seems to be what we have to do constantly so that people don't have to use their critical thinking skills, not you, stranger, but everyone else, I'm not faulting murder victims who chose to go out into the woods. It's every human being's right to be outside and not be murdered. It's pretty much the most basic human right. I'm just saying, for me, I prefer not to play those particular odds. Today, we'll hear the stories of a few intrepid souls who loved the outdoors, but the outdoors didn't love them back. Or maybe it loved them so much, it wanted them to stay out there forever. The Appalachian National Scenic Trail is the longest footpath in the world. It measures 2,198.4 miles end-to-end, give or take a few yards, and crosses through 14 states from Georgia to Maine. It takes about 240,000 volunteer hours a year to maintain the trail along which are more than 250 lean-tos. A lean-to, for my strangers who aren't well-versed in hiking stuff, is a three-sided structure that you can shelter in as long as you're okay with animals freely sauntering around you. It's usually raised up on a platform, so we're not talking about cute bunnies and shit. More like bears. Like, if you're cool with a bear sniffing around your open mouth trying to decide if you're a snack or not while you sleep, a lean-to is your kind of place. Not that the thin material of a tent provides you much better protection, frankly. Hence, again, why I prefer the great indoors. According to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy website, quote, the total elevation gain of hiking the entire AT is equivalent to climbing Mount Everest 16 times, end quote. Take that, Mount Everest. Plus, you can choose not to hike the AT in winter and still hike the whole thing eventually. There's not an option to skip winter on Everest. Not only that, but about 10 people per year die hiking Everest, while only two or three people per year die on the AT. Again, in your face, Everest. Booyah. I don't know why I just pitted the Appalachian Trail against Everest. Like, they're just mountains, dude. It's not a competition. Relax. Anyway. 
The Appalachian National Scenic Trail was conceived by Benton McKay, a young Harvard graduate who allegedly got the idea while sitting in a tree on Stratton Mountain in Vermont in 1900. I guess from all the way up there, he was like, well, by gum, I bet we could forge a path clear down to Georgia from here. It's important to recognize that those mountains and the many trails that already existed in them by 1900 had been inhabited and used largely by the Cherokee for about 16 millennia by that point. Don't worry, I'm not going to go on a social justice rant this time. Just pointing out that people lived there already, though there likely wasn't a through path carved out that spanned the entire range. Because why would there have been? Hiking as an industry wasn't a thing in 1900. It was just called walking back then, and there would have been little reason to want to hike the entire range except for pleasure, and something tells me the native people had plenty of things to do that were pleasurable before all their land was stolen from them. Ha-ha! I slipped in the social justice when you weren't looking. So, Benton McKay was like, let's make a really long walking path. And then, like I often do when I have a cool idea, he seemed to just let it sit and marinate in his head for a couple of decades until 1921, when he wrote an article for the Journal of the American Institute of Architects, in which he proposed the actual construction of the Appalachian Trail. McKay's basic thesis, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, was that people living in the ever-increasingly industrialized cities and even out in the more rural pasture lands were facing the growing problem of having no leisure time because of the demands of work and because the new inhabitants of this continent were destroying natural land in favor of housing and industry at an alarming rate and that even city parks are, quote, an afterthought, end quote. He wrote, it goes without saying that we should work upon the labor problem, not just a matter of capital and labor, but the real labor problem. How to reduce the day's drudgery, the toil and chore of life, should as labor-saving devices increase form a diminishing proportion of the average day and year. Leisure and the higher pursuits will thereby come to form an increasing portion of our lives. The horrible tragedy of this statement, of course, is that those so-called labor-saving devices haven't done anything to diminish the proportion of our average day and year that we spend toiling. If anything, they've made the demand for labor impossible to turn off. You think driverless cars are supposed to afford you leisure time? Just wait till your boss says, why couldn't you get me that report during your drive into work this morning? But the sentiment is nice. Anyway, McKay was basically like, people are working too much and need a place to go to decompress, and he proposed preserving as much as possible of the Appalachian Mountains from development for people to go be one with nature. It was another nine years before construction began. Myron Avery, a lawyer from D.C., read McKay's piece and in 1930 organized crews of volunteers who worked for seven years to clear a trail all the way through the mountain range. Fast forward nearly a hundred years, and these days about 4,000 people attempt to hike through the AT every year, all the way from one end to the other. Only about one in five finish the whole thing before throwing in the dirty old raggedy stinky towel they likely use to bathe with, dry their dishes with, and use as a pillow. Apparently, the number of people attempting to hike the whole thing is decreasing every year. 
The first person to successfully traverse the whole range was a man named Earl Schaffer. Schaffer was a World War II vet who decided to walk the war off, which he managed to do in 124 days, averaging 16 and a half miles a day. I don't know if he succeeded in walking off the war, but I would be willing to bet that hiking alone for four months would do wonders for anyone's psyche. Schaffer walked the entire AT two more times in his life. He was 79 on his last trek through the Appalachian Mountains. You know what I'm going to be doing at 79? Chain-smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey by the barrel and sitting on my porch harping about the good old days when you could at least be off work when you were driving. In 1955, when only five men had successfully continuously hiked the entire AT, 67-year-old Emma Gatewood, a farmer, mother of 11 children and 23 grandchildren, hiked the whole thing alone, becoming the first woman to do so. When she was done 95 days later, quicker, I'll point out, than that World War II vet Schaffer, she told Sports Illustrated... I would never have started this trip if I had known how tough it was. But I couldn't and wouldn't quit. Despite that, she hiked the whole thing two more times. The last time she did it, she was 77. Hashtag goals? Or maybe not. Gatewood's statement might speak to why fewer people attempt the trail every year. Back before everyone and their grandma had told the world how grueling and hard it was, people were probably like, 2,100 miles? Psh, no sweat. And then more and more people were like, no, dude, sweat for sure. Like the most sweat ever. Absolutely, positively drenched. Author Bill Bryson even wrote a book about hiking the entire trail in which he didn't succeed at hiking the entire trail. And now people are like, you know what? I'll just do it with my Quest VR headset from the comfort of my own home in my pajamas. I don't think you can walk the whole AT on Mark Zuckerberg's latest data mining machine, or I mean VR headset, but I'm sure it's right around the corner. Gatewood went by the trail name Grandma Gatewood. A trail name is just a nickname given to you either by yourself, like Bicep Bob, or by your trail companions, like Big Mouth Bob, or by fellow hikers you meet along the way, like, you know, Bob, the guy that thinks he's all jacked and never stops talking? Right, blowhard Bob, that's it. Actually, the trail names, according to the Great Outdoor Provision Company, are more like, quote, Birdman, Gluten Puff, Gerber, or Tiny Dancer, end quote. Mine would be Sleepy Crank. Trail names actually got their start on the Appalachian Trail. There were so many people hiking that it became easier to keep track of people if they had a unique name. That way, if someone was injured or missing, you didn't have to waste precious time trying to identify which guy named Bob you were talking about. And, like I said, only two to three people a year die on the AT. And that's out of the two to three million people that step foot on the trail each year. And those deaths are usually from falls or health conditions. About six people per year go missing somewhere on the AT, usually solo hikers who underestimate how hard the trek is. I assume those who go missing tend to be found eventually. Otherwise, the yearly death toll would be closer to eight. And while it's true that most dangers on the AT are of a natural kind, whether it's a heart attack or a bear, there have, of course, been murders on the AT. 
Because where we humans go, so goes death and destruction. And also like hope and love and stuff, but this podcast isn't called Sunshines and Rainbows. So... It goes without saying that the middle of the forest up in a rugged mountain range would be the perfect place to hide out if you were, say, a fugitive on the run. In 2022, a young man became the subject of a manhunt after murdering his girlfriend, Gabrielle Petito, in Utah. And yes, I know his name. I'm choosing not to use it because he doesn't need to be remembered except as a cautionary tale. Much of the search for him took place in the Appalachian Mountains because he was an experienced backpacker and because anyone familiar with the trail, which he presumably was, would know that there were areas along the trail that one can easily disappear into and survive if they know how. Ultimately, he wasn't found in the Appalachian Mountains, but that doesn't mean that plenty of other people haven't successfully used the thick cover to quite literally disappear off the grid. In 2009, a man named James T. Jones fled his home state of Kentucky where he was wanted on embezzlement charges and spent five years in hiding on the AT using the trail name Bismarck. But using the forest cover to hide out because you committed a crime is one thing. Using it to murder unsuspecting hikers is a whole nother can of dehydrated trail dinners. On May 19, 1996, 26-year-old Lolly Winans and 24-year-old Julianne Julie Williams set out on a meticulously planned five-day hike on the Appalachian Trail in the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. According to the blog Blue Ridge Outdoors, Julie and Lolly had known each other almost two years. They met at Woods Women, a nonprofit in Minnesota focusing on education and adventure travel for women. Julie was an athletic, overachieving geologist. Lolly, on the other hand, came from a wealthy family and found she didn't fit in with the kids from her economic class. She was more interested in going to fish concerts than yacht clubs. And apparently, the two bonded over their shared love of the outdoors. The first night the pair met while on a woodswoman outing, they spent the night laughing and talking and apparently didn't realize till later that they'd actually been flirting. Neither of them had been with a woman before, but it was clear to their friends that they were smitten with each other. Lolly and Julie were both pretty private about their relationship. It was the mid-90s, remember. Being gay could get you killed back then. Oh wait, it still can today. Lolly was still in school and would send Julie 16-page love letters, which I can't tell you how much I relate to. I was also writing 16-page love letters in the mid-90s, listening to Annie Lennox's No More I Love Yous and weeping dramatically over everything and nothing. God, you couldn't pay me to go back to that time. Anyway... Lolly and Julie had big plans for 1996. They were going to move to a house they'd found in Vermont and live together in bliss. And they planned to kick off their adventures together with a hiking trip on the AT. They even brought their golden retriever Taj along for the trek. But when Julie didn't show up back home on May 31st, her father reported her missing immediately, and a search team was sent out to locate the women. Park rangers found the car the women had arrived in and headed out from there. Bridget Bonnet, deputy chief ranger at Shenandoah National Park, told reporters, We started doing hasty searches to cover all of those trail corridors in that general area to see if we could locate them. At some point during those hasty searches, we did locate the dog. 
Their dog was alive, but as anyone knows, finding the dog of missing people is not a great sign. The next evening, June 1st, Julie and Lolly were found in their tent where they'd set up camp off a horse trail. The women had apparently been stripped, tied up and gagged, and had their throats slit. According to the Freelance Star from 2016, police said the deaths were, quote, apparent homicide, end quote. And, like, I get it. Police didn't witness the murders, but I'm willing to go out on a limb and say it wasn't a murder-suicide. You know? Anyway. Their campsite was only a quarter of a mile from the trailhead at Skyline Drive, but the area they were in was considered backcountry, which required them to make sure their camp was out of sight of the trail. Seems like a strange rule to me. I guess people who hike in the backcountry don't want to be reminded that other people exist. The news of the gruesome double murder spread pretty quickly, and inevitably, reporters started going, Say, why were two girls sharing a tent? Which is not only beside the point, but also a pretty practical thing to do when you're going on a five-day hike. One tent is a lot lighter than two. But reporters decided the nature of the women's relationship was important enough that they began hounding Julie's minister at her local church. Reverend Rebecca Strader faced a dilemma. The women were not out to their families, nor was it anyone's business, nor was it crucial to the case, and wasn't their privacy worth protecting? Strader wondered how their families might feel learning this information about their own daughters in the newspaper. On the other hand, according to a piece in Out magazine from November 1st, 1996, if someone was out there targeting gay and lesbian people, the public needed to know that. After a week of conversations with gay and straight congregants, as well as a lesbian minister friend, Strader decided she owed it to the public to divulge the nature of Julie and Lolly's relationship. Ultimately, she felt that keeping their families comfortable was less important. I would hope that if there is some kind of afterlife, that the two women agreed. Julie and Lolly quickly became symbols of the LGBTQ community in Vermont. At a public memorial for the two women, activist Susan Aronoff of the Vermont Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Rights said, We have a lot to be angry about. Right now, our very lives are being exploited as cheap political fodder, so Bill Clinton can appear to be moderate. Amen to that. Another activist declared that the two women were going to be, quote, model lesbian Vermonters, end quote, whatever that means. A little more than a year after Julie and Lolly were murdered, a man named Daryl David Rice was arrested for attempting to abduct a woman who was biking in the Shenandoah National Park. Though Rice had no criminal record, his former co-workers at MCI, a phone company that doesn't exist anymore, described him as extremely hostile. According to the Blue Ridge Outdoors blog, he yelled profanities, some of them of a sexual nature, punched a hole in the wall of the men's bathroom, stole co-workers' lunches, purposely bumped into co-workers to make them spill their coffee, and took one woman's picture and threw it in the trash. When I read that, I messaged Jess, my researcher, and was like, was this all at one job? And he was like, yeah, I believe so. Just to give you a sense of what the workplace was like back in the old days. 
someone could continually behave like this and miraculously not get fired. While Rice was serving a 10-year sentence for that attempted abduction, investigators began to suspect him in the murders of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. According to a now-defunct newspaper, The Hook, quote, Rice became a possible suspect for a variety of reasons, including the obvious parallels in geographic location, the predatory behavior exhibited, and the exclusive selection of female victims, end quote. I can only assume the victims they were referring to were former co-workers he'd harassed because, again, before the attempted abduction, Rice had never been arrested. Which further begs the question, if these women were victims, why in the world was he allowed to continue working with them? Anyway... According to The Hook, Rice, quote, was videotaped entering Shenandoah Park at Front Royal at 8.05 p.m. on May 25th and again at Rockfish Gap at 4.57 p.m. on May 26th. He returned with his friends Carol and Robert Ruckert on June 1st, end quote. Rice denied having been in the park on May 25th and 26th, but admitted to being there on the 1st. According to the Blue Ridge blog, prosecutors alleged, quote, Rice has stated on several occasions that he enjoys assaulting women because they are, in his words, quote, more vulnerable, close quote, than men, end quote. They also claimed he said the two women deserved to die because they were gay. Are those shitty remarks? Absolutely. But shitty remarks aren't evidence of murder. Despite that, Rice was charged with four counts of murder and with a hate crime which made him eligible for the death penalty. But then, in 2004, prosecutors dropped the charges against Rice because they found something called actual evidence which strongly suggested Rice wasn't involved in the double murder, specifically DNA found on a hair at the crime scene which didn't match Rice or the two women. Deirdre Enright, founder and director of the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia, has pointed out that there is plenty of DNA from the crime scene to test, including male DNA on one of the gags and hair on duct tape that didn't belong to the women. And of Rice, Enright said, Daryl Rice is pretty much a hot mess. He wasn't able to get a woman off a bike, and she threw a soda at him. So, after all that, as far as anyone knows, whoever murdered Julie Williams and Lolly Winans is still out there. Up north, toward the other end of the trail, up in Pinkham's Grant, New Hampshire, 52-year-old Canadian psychologist and outdoor enthusiast Louise Chapu was headed toward the Joe Dodge Lodge, where she had a reservation for the night of November 15, 2001. Her plan was to spend a long weekend hiking on the AT. Her usual hiking buddies weren't available that weekend, but that made no difference to Louise. She was, according to her family, quote, an independent free spirit with a love of adventure, end quote. Before stopping for the night at the lodge, Louise made a stop at the AMC Visitor Center around 3 p.m. and asked the desk clerk if they could recommend a short hike she could make before it got too dark. The clerk recommended a short walk around Lost Pond Trail, the trailhead of which was right across the street from the visitor center. Four days later, when Louise didn't return home as expected, her longtime partner Pierre Rabbi reported her missing, and he and the couple's eldest daughter, Corrine, and a close friend headed down to New Hampshire to look for Louise themselves. 
It took another two days for anyone to locate Louise's car parked in a lot near several trailheads, including the one to Lost Pond. Her car keys were missing along with one of her two backpacks, her hiking shoes, water, and chocolate, three things she would apparently always take with her on a hike, were still in the car. It seems whatever happened to her began at her car in the parking lot. The next day, Louise's body was found on the Glen Boulder Trail just a quarter mile from the visitor center. She had been stabbed multiple times. It seems whoever had killed her had forced her off the trail into a clearing about 100 yards away and killed her there. And it seems to me, based on what she'd left behind in her car, she was likely forced down the Glen Boulder Trail to begin with. Whoever had done this, though, had about a week's distance between themselves and the murder. Police vaguely suspected Louise's partner, Pierre, because usually when a woman is murdered, it is her intimate partner that did it. But Pierre was hundreds of miles away in Canada when it happened. They thought perhaps Louise had been having an affair and that that person had murdered her in a fit. Again, it is so common that women are murdered by their partners. According to an article from the Daily Beast in 2021, eventually two men came forward claiming to know who killed Louise and then apparently began accusing each other. One of them claimed to know where Louise's missing belongings were. Turned out, though, that none of the claims these jabronis were making had any merit. Then in 2005, Louise's daughter, Corrine, got a phone call from a man claiming to know who killed her mother. When police traced the call, once again, it led to one of the asshats who'd inserted themselves into the case the decade before. Police said the guy obviously wasn't the murderer, though how exactly they came to that conclusion, I don't know. Oddly, though, around the same time, police announced they were zeroing in on a suspect, and then, according to the Daily Beast, Corrine said, That was very weird. We never understood what happened. It was as if they were about to arrest someone, and finally, they didn't. We don't know what happened. Despite the dead ends, or perhaps because of them, Corrine had taken up the mantle of finding justice for her mother. She runs a Facebook page and is considering making a documentary about her mother's murder to draw more attention to it. Hopefully, given advancements in DNA technology, they might be able to retest evidence and get some more leads. But for the time being, the search continues, and Corrine can only hope new information will present itself and lead her to the person or people responsible for her mother's death. Back down south on the trail on August 12, 2011, hikers in Mount Pleasant Scenic area in Virginia discovered the partially buried body of a man just off the trail. It took law enforcement more than a week to identify the dead man as 30-year-old Scott Lilly from South Bend, Indiana. Scott had been hiking alone using the trail name Stonewall. He was last heard from on July 31st of that year when he checked in with his mother from the Cow Camp Gap Shelter just about a half mile from where his body would be found. Officials ruled his death as homicide by suffocation. Most of Scott's gear was missing. Virginia State Police tracked down 83 hikers and park workers who were in the area at the same time as Scott, two of whom were now in other countries. But nothing came of these extensive interviews, and the investigators are incredibly tight-lipped about any other information on this case. 
I wish there was more to say about this one, strangers, but all we can say is that to this day, no one knows who murdered Scott Lilly and partially buried him right off a hiking trail. Death is rare on the Appalachian Trail, and murder is even more rare, but that doesn't make it any less awful. It's particularly sad when you think about how these four innocent victims were doing what they deeply loved, being outdoors, communing with nature. To be brutally murdered in a place you hold so close to your heart seems extra unfair and tragically poetic. It's ironic, too, that the drudgery of work with no natural space for leisure or to decompress from the stress of life, the very thing that Benton McKay warned us against way back in 1921, could indeed be a factor driving the darkness inside whoever murdered these people. Nature is healing. Remembering that we are all a part of this one thing called life on this one planet called Earth is vital to remembering our own humanity and the humanity in others. But it is also crucial to have a healthy respect for the vast and wild indifference of nature and to never forget that predation lies within the nature of humankind. We are a part of nature, and nature is always worthwhile, even if it is not always safe. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, in a remote part of the wilderness in Maine in 1974, four men saw something unexplainable in the sky and lost hours of their lives they wouldn't recover until years later. The story of the Allagash Four. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino and written by me, Daisy Egan, with research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, and sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Andrea Jones-Sojola, and Jordan Kyburnett. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash Donald Trump. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. 